Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show today, and it is going to be a great show. First, hey, Yoshiko, special shout-out to you. I know all my listeners 17 countries. I know you hear me do this every show, but that's because I am determined to keep Yoshiko and Justin's spirit alive. So thank you for everything you're doing, Yoshiko. And uh, special thanks to our lead sponsor, Highmark, for sponsoring the show. And another sponsor, AudioEye. Thank you both so very much. I want to mention... Um, once again, Ireland. I mean, wow. You guys, I don't know what's going on there, but you are a great listening group. I mean, every country is, but you have really been beyond the call of duty. Uh, keep it up. Keep spreading that news. Well, I can't tell you how excited I am about this show because, boy, does this fit into international work. Because today... We have someone that, you know, whether reading the history book, No Pity, or anything related to our history, everyone knows Judy Human. I have to tell you something. It always really gets to me. You know, I've been to Indonesia, Japan, and South Korea, um, and I'll be actually be talking to Judy because in August I have to go to Kazakhstan and I know she has contacts everywhere but just to put it in perspective okay I'll go to a country no matter where I am you know Judy I said Judy Yuman yeah Judy Yuman she is like just known everywhere for everything she's done and I'm just honored to have her as my friend and I mean it you're like a mentor and role model to me, Judy Human. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Joyce. It's so nice to be with you. And hello to everybody overseas and in the U.S. Well, I thought maybe, because you know, since this goes around the world, but nationally, um, I, I thought maybe you could give just a few minutes to let them know, because I know when I heard you speak about this, in California at uh, Loyola with Tony Coelho, it was just so powerful. I, I wanted to ask you if you could tell a little bit about your childhood and when you had those first encounters with discrimination. So I'm 70 and a half years old. It's kind of shocking to me too. And I was born in 1947. I had polio in 1949, and as a result of my polio, I'm unable to walk, and I have limited use of my arms, decent use of my hands, but limited use of my arms. So I'm a post-polio quadriplegic. And in 1949, uh, there was an epidemic of polio, and yet President Roosevelt had recently died, and my mother and father were big fans of his, and Mrs. Roosevelt. And when I got polio, I think, you know, basically in the back of my mother's mind, she had the image of President Roosevelt, who was the president. And so um, when 
I was five years old, and my mother took me to our local public school, and they said that I couldn't go to the school because it wasn't accessible. It was a shock to my mother and my father. But I think, you know, having this image in the back of their mind about the Roosevelt over time uh, really impacted their ability to become stronger advocates. My parents um, both have deceased, but they were um, born in Germany. They came over in 1935, and, sorry, 1934, 1935. And uh, my father was in the Marines. And they lost, both my parents lost their grandparents. And one of them lost a great-grandparent and other family members. So when they met in 1946, when my dad got out of the military, and they got married, um, they were really anticipating working hard, living the American dream, raising a family, etc. So when I was denied admission into elementary school when I was in kindergarten, as I said, it was a shock. So my parents were trying to figure out what to do to get me into school. And um, the Board of Education, I, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. The Board of Education in New York City at that time, because there were no laws that required that disabled children go to school. Um, I think there was a requirement that I receive an education. And so at that time, what happened was the Board of Education of the City of New York sent a teacher to my home, but for a total of two and a half hours a week. So one day they came for an hour, another day they came for an hour and a half. So my mother and father were looking for schools. I didn't finally get into school until I was nine years old. And then I was only in segregated classes for disabled children. Now, for the audience, you know, we had at, the, at that time in the 40s, 50s, 60s, uh, there was no Section 504, which prohibits discrimination in programs receiving money from the federal government. We had no Individual Disabilities Education Act, and we had no Americans with Disabilities Act. So there were no rights anyplace. And so I got into school when I was in the fourth grade. And then what my mother learned is for those children in the special, it was called Health Conservation 21. So for those of us in the Health Conservation 21 classes, which meant we had physical disabilities and had issues with walking, problems with walking or were not able to walk. Um, what happened was my mother found out that those of us who used wheelchairs and couldn't walk were supposed to go back on home instruction when we went to high school. So my mother and a number of other mothers in the city began to organize and forced the Board of Education to make some of the high schools accessible so that myself and other friends would not have to go back on home instruction. So, you know, throughout the beginning of my life, I was experiencing both discrimination and also learning about advocacy. So I really credit my mother in particular, because my father was the supporter of my mother. He worked full-time as a butcher in a small butcher shop with his brother. But, you know, the issue of discrimination 
for me as a five-year-old kid, you know, you don't feel it as discrimination. But when I didn't go to school till I was in the fourth grade, what I was seeing is my friends in the neighborhood who were beginning to go to school and I wasn't. My mother had two other children. My parents had two other children. And my brother Joseph is a year and a half younger than I am. And so he started going to school when I was seven or six and a half. So as I got older, I was really realizing that something was wrong. You know, the fact that I was unable to go to school, but my brother was and my friends were. So as I got older, it was something that I really was beginning to question why am I not being given the same opportunities as others just because I can't walk. That's kind of the beginning stages of how I really became more of an advocate, recognizing that you can't accept a no. Sometimes they're legitimate no's and you have to really make a decision yourself as to whether or not the no you're receiving is legitimate, whether or not it's completely out of the question, which usually is not the case, whether you need to look at um, mediation, negotiation, looking at coming to a compromise, or whether you have to just fight for what you completely believe in. When you believe a no should be a yes, looking at what you can do to make that happen. You know, I even I've heard you tell this story, and still every time it's like so, it's as if I always see something different, and I did not realize how many years it was until you went to school, nor did I realize it was only two hours a week. Unbelievable. I mean, that I mean the is other r- issue is when I went, when I did get to go to the Health Conservation 21 classes, it still was not at all an equivalent education because I was like the other kids in the class. It was a regular school building with non-disabled children um, on the first, second, third, fourth floor. The disabled children went to school in the basement. And I would get picked up about 7.30 in the morning. I'm sorry, 7 in the morning, get to school around 8.30 because we had to pick up other kids. And then by the time we were ready to start learning, it was 9 o'clock. But then there was occupational therapy, physical therapy, speech therapy. I didn't get speech therapy, but you went to occupational therapy, physical therapy. Then lunch was an hour, and then there was a mandatory rest hour. And then we started getting ready to leave at 2 because the buses left at 2.30. So you can see that I was definitely receiving more education, but it was not six hours a day. It was typically two to three hours a day. And the grades were, like, I wasn't in a fourth grade class. I was in a classroom with kids who were nine to 18. Because in these special classes, students stayed there till they were 21. And then they went to sheltered workshops. In the group that my mother was working with, um, helping to get the Board of Education to see that they had to make some of the high schools accessible. That was really the first time. So I was the first student to graduate from my Health Conservation 21 classes to ever go on to high school. 
Before that, students stayed till they were 21, went on to a sheltered workshop. Now, most of the students in the classes had cerebral palsy, and those children should have been going to high school, but weren't. And I was the first student who had had polio. And then my friend Frida, um, who also passed away a number of years ago, she had muscular dystrophy, and she used a wheelchair, too. And we used to joke that we were the, we integrated the program, one student who had polio and one student who had muscular dystrophy. I also want to say that what was interesting at that time is that the school itself, public school 219, was basically 99.9% white school. But the special special education classes were all racially integrated. And so some of the issues that were going on at that time were different than what those of us with disabilities were experiencing because we had children in our class at that time who were African-American and uh, Latino, particularly from Puerto Rico. Uh, Now, of course, things have changed, much more diversified, but we did not go to classes that were all white, nor did we go to summer camps that were all white, because the summer camps, too, were racially uh, diverse. So I think that was really an advantage uh, amongst disadvantages that I was experiencing. So there was a a lot going on in my youth and other people's youth. Wow. Um, You know what? I can't believe how smart you are. I mean, you're, I mean, with, with that education I'm talking about, um, obviously you're intelligent to begin with, but your mother was really a freedom fighter. You know that she really, Mm -hmm. she, she was, she was really, um, she was determined. Takes great parents like that. As my father. I I think that was good. You know, my father really supported my mother and, yeah, so it was a good combination. Yeah, right. Um, well, but I, I always say, so for the parents in the audience that are listening, being strong role, role models for your children is very important. You need to believe that your children can succeed in life, and when they are experiencing discrimination, you need to play an appropriate role, age-appropriate. And by that I mean if you believe your child should be receiving a certain type of education that they're not getting, regardless of the country that you're living in. You need to fight for them to get an education that's equivalent to other children in your family or in the community. And your children will grow up to respect you for really advocating on their behalf so that their future lives would be better, so they could be able to contribute through work, and be members of the community, contributing members of the community with disabilities. And it helps overall to help your local communities recognize that disability is a normal part of life. And as such, you want to remove the barriers that are precluding or limiting people's ability to contribute. Yeah. Because I, you know, of course, I'm living with epilepsy, and I always tell parents, every time you say to your child, shh, don't tell anyone, 
you know, that you have epilepsy, you're really saying right. there's something wrong with you. Uh, right. and, and, and just like Judy, how her, she had great role model parents, but they also believed that she could uh, excel just as any other child. You know, when you don't do that, you are setting that child up for disaster when it comes to employment, not just, you know, social engagement but employment. So, you know, that is, pity is the worst thing you could absolutely do. And I agree with uh, Judy 100% about that. Well, Judy, when you look in history books, even when I was in Japan, there are photographs of you doing the great sit-in that occurred in Berkeley. And I wondered, since I feel our history is so important, I wonder if you could talk about that for a few minutes. Sure. I lived in Brooklyn until I was 25, and then I moved to Berkeley, California to uh, do two things. One was to attend graduate school. I went to the University of California, Berkeley. I got my master's degree in public health. And then I also got involved in the beginning stages of an organization called the Center for Independent Living in Berkeley. Uh, There are about 700 centers for independent living in the United States, and they're all over Europe and Asia. Uh, There's a beginning little bit of centers for independent living in Africa. Um, But when I moved out to Berkeley and uh, got involved with the CIL, I got on their board, I started working with a gentleman named Ed Roberts and another gentleman named Phil Draper and a number of other people uh, in standing up, I shouldn't say that, in developing the Center for Independent Living, which uh, was and is a cross-disability organization that uh, works on empowerment uh, of disabled individuals, including in the area of employment, but significantly really uh, working with disabled people and uh, local county, state, and federal government on both development of policies and effective implementation of policies that will benefit disabled people. And um, as CIL developed, Ed Roberts, who was one of the founders of CIL, became the director of the Department of Rehabilitation in California and used some of the federal money for the rehabilitation services programs to help set up other centers for independent living. So in California, we had 11 centers for independent living. And there were a few centers in Michigan and Massachusetts. And then between 1973 and 1978, there was a big movement to try to get federal funding to set up these programs. So just hold that thought in the back of your mind. In the Bay Area in California, where I said that we now had across the state 11 or 12 centers for independent living that were very active in local communities, hold that thought. In 1973, there was a law, the Rehabilitation Act, of 1973 that has an important provision called Title V. For any of you who are interested in 
Disability Rights, Title V of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 is a critical piece of our history. Um, it has provisions in there which prohibit discrimination against disabled individuals if the entity is receiving money from the federal government. And that's called Section 504. So Section 501 and 502 and 503 and 504 are important. We're not going to discuss most of those today. But the law was signed in 1973. And then we have something uh, that people may not know about, but typically after a law is passed at the federal level, there's something called regulations. Regulations basically are intended to interpret what the law says so that people have responsibility for implementing it and people who will benefit from the law understand what the law is and what the law isn't. When Title V of the Rehab Act was passed in 1973, Section 504 was only like 42 words. And it basically said you can't discriminate based on disability if you're getting money from the federal government. But it didn't say what that meant. And so what happened between 1973 and 1977 is there was a lot of work that was being done by, at that point, health, education, and welfare and disability groups in the United States to make sure that the regulations were good and clear and effectively written and implemented so that, in fact, we would be able to obtain our rights as defined under the law. And President Nixon was the one who signed the regula I'm sorry, signed the statute. And then when he left office, President Ford. And over that period of time, there was groups of disabled people that were working with the federal government to develop regulations. And in 1975, there was an organization that was established called ACCD, the American Coalition of Citizens with Disabilities. ACCD, unfortunately, lasted about seven or eight years. But it was a very effective organization when it started. Um, its chairperson was a wonderful woman by the name of Eunice Fiorito. Everson Frank, I-O-R-I-T-O. She was a blind woman originally from Chicago who moved to New York City and became the head of the Mayor's Office on Disability. And she became the chairperson of ACCD. And a gentleman named Frank Bowe, a deaf man, became the executive director. And the board was cross-disability. It was made up of national disabled-run organizations. And between 1975 and 1977, uh, the coalition was doing a lot of work on the development of the regulations. In 1976, when President Ford ran against President uh, Carter, Carter promised that he would have his administration sign the regulations. And so many of us um, Democrats worked on his campaign. So when he was elected in 1976, we were expecting the 504 regulations, which we felt were good. They were obviously 
like anything, a compromise because universities and hospitals and public schools and transportation systems, any entity getting money from the federal government was going to have to comply with these regulations. And there had been a comment period. People had written in their comments and the regulations were ready to be signed. When Secretary Califano came in under the Carter administration, he decided that he wanted to do a thorough review, which in and of itself was not bad because there were new admit it was a switchover not only of president but political parties. But what we started to hear was that he intended to make significant changes in the proposed regulations. So ACCD had been having numbers of meetings with members of Congress and the administration. And finally, I was on the board. Um, and the board, in I believe it was February of 1977, basically said that regulations needed to be signed for Section 504 as they were. We wanted no more changes. And if they hadn't been signed by a particular date, then there were going to be demonstrations around the country. So in the Bay Area, California, remember, we had the most centers for independent living. And one of the important parts of having community-based organizations, not just centers for independent living, but is you can choose, as we did, to become actively involved in what was going on in our communities. So we were making alliances with organizations that were working in the area of disability, but we were also making alliances with many organizations that were not necessarily working in disability, but that were um, social justice organizations, uh, civil rights organizations, organizations that were fighting for equity. And we were working with them to get disability integrated into those agendas. So in February of 1977, when the American Coalition of Citizens with Disabilities decided that we were insisting on the regulations being signed. In the Bay Area, we set up a, like a working group. It was called the Committee to Save 504. And it had a number of centers for independent living and many other different types of organizations working. And so in April, when the date came that ACCD said, if the regulations aren't signed, we will have demonstrations. There were demonstrations in all nine federal regional, regional offices and in some other places. But with, and in the Bay Area, we had, been, we had a working committee that had been working with the regional office for health, education, and welfare, discussing that we were going to be coming and wanted to have a meeting to talk about what was going on and basically to say that we were unhappy with the fact that the 504 regulations had not yet been signed in Washington. But we organized really well. We had about, I don't know, hundreds of people outside the federal building, which was in San Francisco. It was not in Berkeley. And uh, San Francisco was like a hub. And we had the demonstration. A group of people went into the federal building in San Francisco to have a meeting with what's called the regional director at that time, Health, Education, and Welfare. And we met with him, and we met with his staff, 
and we were very unhappy because they were not aware of what the substance of the regulations were, and they hadn't been signed. So we decided that we were going to stay in the building overnight. So you can read about this. You can go and look at something on YouTube called The Power of 504. It'll give you a really good historical look at what actually happened. But it was very important because disabled people with different types of disabilities, uh, different ages, it was very intergenerational, intergenerational cross-disability, um, took over the federal building, and we wound up staying in the building for 27 days. 20 of us left and went back to Washington, D.C. to join protesters in Washington, D.C., but the only place where the sitting continued beyond one night was in San Francisco with the 504 committee. And we were successful. Um, ACCB and the groups around the country and the continuing pressure of the demonstrations in San Francisco resulted in the regulations being signed without any change. So we were really happy um, because we were knowledgeable. We had worked on this issue very hard. We had made contacts with um, senators and congressmen, both Republicans and Democrats, to talk about why this was so important. The community of disabled people around the country had been getting involved in what was going on. So it was really, in many ways, the real launch of the national disability rights movement. Wow. Uh, would you tell them again, where did you say to go to read more about that, to see that? Where did you say to go? Sure. And then you can post it. It's called The Power of 504. The Power of 504. Okay. It was narrated, narrated by a woman named Kitty Cohn, and Kitty had been one of the leaders of the 504 demonstrations. Myself and Kitty and um, a number of other people played a role in helping to organize the demonstrations. Mary Lou Breslin, Pat Wright, um, the Centers for Independent Living, Disability Rights Education and Defense Fund. And Kitty, unfortunately, has passed away, but she was the one who narrated um, the footage. And it's a very, it's about 30 minutes, a little less. And uh, it's very informative. And it's free. I will do what you said. Well, Judy, I know you're going to be very happy to know that we have incorporated on our show every week Advocacy Matters. Uh, And I am so honored to be on the board of the Pennsylvania Disability Rights Network and to have Perry Jude Radisick, the CEO, who is phenomenal, with us. So every week she comes on and gives all of my listeners an update. So, Perry, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Joyce, and uh, thank you, Judy, for all the work you've done for all of us. Uh, and the lessons that we're learning today are, are so important. Uh, Joyce, today I want to talk about the ABLE Act. Age, uh, well, the ABLE Age Adjustment Act. 
And uh, we've all been celebrating the ABLE Act, uh, which is also known as the Achieving a Better Life Experience Act. And that was signed into law in December of 2014. I think many of your listeners remember that the ABLE Act amended a section of the IRS code to allow certain persons with disabilities to save money tax-free to cover disability-related expenses. In addition, uh, besides it being tax-free, the resources that people with disabilities save in these ABLE accounts are not taken into consideration when determining eligibility for supplemental Social Security and Medicaid. So this was very important. But Congress set an age limit on who could set up ABLE accounts, and they limited to a person who had acquired their disability prior to the age of 26. So it left out a lot of people with disabilities who acquired their disabilities after the age of 26. So Disability Rights Pennsylvania is one of at least 159 organizations who are knocking on the doors of Congress asking Congress to increase the age from 26 to 46. So in other words, we want Congress to let people who acquired their disability uh, prior to the age now of 46 to be eligible to open up these ABLE accounts. And we think this is important for a lot of reasons, Joyce. First, it opens the eligibility door to many more individuals with disabilities who could benefit from this tax savings and then also be eligible for SSI and Medicaid. And secondly, it would so significantly expand the pool of individuals who could open up ABLE accounts because what we're hearing nationally is that there just aren't enough individuals opening up the ABLE accounts. So on our website, you can find the bill numbers. The bill numbers are Senate Bill 817 and House Resolution, uh, House Bill Number 1874. And both bills are called the ABLE Age Adjustment Act. So they're both called the same thing. So if you go to our website, uh, either later today or uh, I know there's a holiday tomorrow, maybe by Thursday morning, you'll find all of this information at disabilityrightspa.org. So as you know, advocacy matters, and so does your listeners' help in finding more co-sponsors for the ABLE Age Adjustment Act so we can get it on uh, the House and Senate floor. Wow, Perry, thank you so much. And uh, I have a question. I have a question. Can yeah. I ask a question, Joyce? Yes. Okay, so great explanation. Could you explain a little bit more about who can put money into these ABLE accounts? Absolutely. So these are people who acquired the disabilities prior to the age of 26. Uh, an individual with a disability can open an account or it can be a person acting on their behalf. So it means that um, if I were to open an account, I could put other I could put money into that account. And if I had family members who wanted to put money in the account, they could do that too. A absolutely. Thank you uh, for uh, raising that point. 
yes, if, as long as you acquired your disability prior to the age of 26, you can open an ABLE account, and anyone could put money in that account for that person with a disability. It could be family members, it could be friends, uh, and it, it could be the individual themselves if they are, uh, could be employed and they want to put money in that account. Okay. And is there restrictions on when they can pull it out, or can they pull it out when they need it? No, there are restrictions on how the money is to be used. Uh, the money is to be used uh, for um, their needs, like maybe for additional health care, or maybe it is for clothing, or maybe it is for education, or maybe it is for some other purpose uh, like that. A technology. Um, A technology. Technology, yes. Mm -hmm. A mm -hmm. technology. Mm -hmm. Anything the waiver may not be covering uh, or Medicaid is not covering. It could be rent. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. So it's basically essential things that a person needs. Um, yes. And a lot of it is disability specific, but rent obviously is critical because you need to have a place to live. Okay. And as we know, rents are, are so expensive these days. And, uh, but yeah, absolutely. I think what's really important is... Um, is there a website that people can go to so they could read more about it? Oh, yes. Uh, so on, is soon, uh, either later this afternoon or by Thursday, at our website, uh, people can go and find out more information about the ABLE Act. Also, people can find out information uh, from the consortium for, uh, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, the... Uh, consortium for Citizens with Disabilities? Yes. Thank you. Yes. That's good. So it's called the Consortium for Citizens with Disabilities, CCD for short. It's based out of uh, Washington, D.C. It's got more than 100 national organizations uh, that are a part of it. And I think also the National Disability Leadership um, Alliance, NBLA, is another uh, consortium of groups. This is really important. I'm really glad to learn more about it. Uh, and, and thank uh, you for that and opening uh, it up a little bit more. And Perry, you will have it on the website so they can read about it in more detail, correct? That, that's correct. Uh, and we'll have links to the other organizations as well, like the ARC, uh, who has additional information about ABLE Acts. Okay. And the website? Our Is website. DisabilityRightsPA.org. Pennsylvania. Go ahead. One more time. Yes. It's disabilityrightspa.org. Okay. Now, as you all know, and I say this all the time, but I mean it, no matter what the disability rights group is or no matter what the nonprofit is, we all want them to fight for our rights and to do so much. Can't do it without revenue. So don't forget take time to make a contribution. And Perry, thank you for the great work you're doing and have a great 4th of July. Yes, you too. Thank you, Joyce. Thank you. Nice to talk to you, Perry. Sure.
We do this every week uh, because it's important. It's important to know what's going on. So it's like a little news flash. Um, and I, I really like how Perry takes so much time to really think about this before she comes on and talks about it. <clears throat> so, Judy, you know what? I'm going to skip forward right. because, wow, talking to you so so exciting that this show is going to be over before you know it. So I want to move down for a minute um, on what I was going to ask you about. What are you doing right now? Tell our listeners what you're doing right now. Okay, so um, right now I'm doing a couple things. One is I'm actually in the hospital with my husband who's sick, so I'm kind of here for a couple days. Um, But in the broader scale, I'm a senior fellow at the Ford Foundation. The Ford Foundation is based in New York. It is not part of the Ford Motor Company. It's uh, one of the largest foundations in the United States, and they're a social justice foundation. And I've been working with them since last uh, July, no, last August, rather, um, both helping them as they're moving forward, integrating disability into their knowledge and into the grant-making that they give, um, as well as working on a media project. And so I've been working on a media project, which is looking at um, how other minority groups have been advancing over the last number of decades in both authenticity and representation in documentaries, television, now emerging media, um, both from the programmatic perspective and also from the perspective of people that are working behind it in front of the camera, the screen, whatever. And um, I had a convening last Tuesday, which was great, with about 27 representatives from different entities, and then I'm going to be putting a paper out the end of August, basically putting forward the findings. And I think to summarize it very briefly, Disabled people, like in every other aspect of life, are making a little bit of progress. But if you look at what is actually happening with authentic representation of disabled people in our stories and disabled people as actors and across the area of all the types of jobs that are available, we are really, really, really behind. And so my intent in that work is to really help get people together who are not only working in this area, but are important in media in general, but haven't necessarily been doing work in disability and to help advance that. Um, My fellowship ends the end of August. In addition to that, I've been doing something called the Human Perspective. It's a Facebook uh, program. And my name is spelled H-E-U-M-A-N-N. So it's called The Human Perspective. And twice a month we post videos of different people, most from the U.S., but not all, of different types of disabilities, different ages, doing work in different areas. It's basically storytelling. So now we have about 60 stories that are posted with more that will continue to come forward. On Mondays, we're doing something called um, Men's Crush Monday, where we, most Mondays, are highlighting a disabled man who's making a contribution. And Wednesdays, we do Women's Crush Wednesdays. And um, it's 
that's been very exciting. And I continue to do international advocacy. I'm on a number of boards of directors and active in my synagogue and, 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 and. And, and, and is correct. And, uh, you know, if you are interested in Judy coming to a conference speaking, including anything internationally, you know, I guess now everyone can reach you through that Facebook page. Yeah, you can also, I, so if any of you have watched something called Drunk History or have heard of it, if you go uh, to Google and put in Drunk History 504, uh, you'll see a 11-minute piece that was done on the demonstrations I was discussing. And the woman who plays me is a woman named Allie Stroker, who's a paraplegic woman and the first wheelchair user to ever perform on Broadway. It's a really funny piece. Not Jefferson Airplane, if you watch it, did not participate in the demonstrations, but it is a, a very representative picture of what happened during the 504 demonstration. Um, I also did a TED Talk, which you can go look at. Um, go to TED Talk and put in my name, Judy Human, H-E-U-M-A-N-N. All right, I have to tell you, I saw that drunken history. The one you're talking right. about. Oh, that is so awesome. And, you know, it's, really- it's, it's humorous, but it's so right on. Make sure, drunken history, you've got to go look that up and see those videos. They are, that one uh, with Judy is and fi- about 504. Um, I loved that. That was so good. I really did. Um, okay, well, you still have a lot going on. No surprise to me uh, because you are really a young 70. Uh-huh. May I say, when I hear young people talk about stress and how hard it is, here she is at the hospital <laughs> doing this radio show. And that just says it all right there about Judy, her commitment to disability, uh, her friendship, which is priceless to me. Uh, And and by the way, we wish the best for Jorge, your husband. Thank you. Judy, something I want to talk about. I can't end the show today without talking about this. You know how I'll go to, as everyone knows, I own a company focused on the competitive employment of people with disabilities. And we have that new software product, iDisability, our training product. So I am frequently going to all these new customers and, you know, Fortune 500 corporations. And often they'll want me to meet whoever's heading up their ERG group. And I'll go and it never What is an ERG group? Employment resource group. So at every company, they will Mm -hmm. get employees with disabilities, but not all. Sometimes it's people that have a child with a disability. Um, And so this is like as if you'd have at a company, the group for the LGBT community, veterans, etc. People right in the company. So every time I go... And I think a lot of the ERGs have, as you say, not just disabled people or family members, but people who are also interested in advancing inclusion in the company, right? Yes, yes, that is. And sometimes that's the person that heads these 
uh, groups. Right. Often it is, as a matter of fact, someone from di- uh, disability, diversity and inclusion. Well, every time I go, this is what they'll say. We named our group differently abled or diverse ability or abilities, and I know you'll never believe this one, handy capable, uh, taking the dis out of disability. And I always tell them, please don't do that. I hate that. That is offensive (laughs) to the disability community. Don't relabel us. You know, that's what you want to say. That's what you want to say, and that is because of the stigma you have attached to disability. But I know that you also have a strong sentiment and perspective on this. So for businesses listening to the show, um, Judy, maybe you could explain why you feel it is important to use the word disability. I mean, I think you and I are on the same page as are many other people. Visibility is a word that is not a problem word to me. I am unable to walk. I have a physical disability. I'm not ashamed of it. You have epilepsy. You have a disability. People have all types of hidden disabilities and visible disabilities. It is a term that we use to define who we are, and it's a political term for me because, you know, you look at other movements, women, the black movement, the Latino or Hispanic movement, the Native American movement, people have names that define them. And disability is, unfortunately, an area where non-disabled people feel like they can change the terms that we call ourselves. And because many disabled people don't necessarily yet identify as having a disability. So someone with uh, an invisible disability that could be caused by lupus or any one of a number, multiple sclerosis or whatever it may be, for many of those people, the first thing they're dealing with is changes in their life. They don't necessarily really know about the movement. It's important for them to learn about the movement. It's important that our terminology is the terminology that's used. And I think we're seeing with younger disabled people that people are really uh, coming together and recognizing the importance of identity. So the two major terms that I think are acceptable in the disability community is the use of disabled people and people with disabilities. I use the term disabled people because all other movements say, I'm a black person, I'm a woman who's black, I'm a Latino, I'm whatever. And we're the only group that says people with disabilities, but for some people, that's a term that they want to utilize. So I respect that. Um, But at the end of the day, all these different terms take us away from the substantive issue. So when looking at a company that's put together a group to look at issues of barriers that people are facing in the company, the name should be one which is in line with what the movement says, which is disabled people or people with disabilities. And getting into all these um, plays on the word, imagine if somebody 
decided to say something like, when you look at the word black, B-L-A-C-K, if you took off the B, you would have the word lack. Black people don't lack. How insulting would that be? But we're not supposed to be insulted by people changing these words. There was a gentleman named Paul Longmore. He unfortunately also passed away. But he was a historian, a disabled guy. And he wrote a number of books. But I saw him on a video once where he was talking about what Joyce has been saying, all these different euphemisms. And then he said, well, call me all boogered up. But of course he was joking because he called himself a disabled person. But that's kind of what it comes down to. Call me all boogered up. Leave it alone. Talk about substance. Talk about discrimination. Talk about opportunities. Talk about training. Talk about getting people jobs, getting married, living in the community, and leave our terminology alone. Amen. You need to speak at some of these national conferences to business leaders, and I have one in mind right now, right this minute. Well, Judy, thank you so much for being with us today, especially under the circumstances. But since this went so quickly, I will be having you back on because we could now have a whole show about uh, international disability so I will be calling you to uh, do that because I think all these things are so important um, I can't thank well, you I want to thank you Joyce for your continued leadership and continuing to do this show which I think how many years has it been on now mm, 18 see this is phenomenal so um, I also encourage other people in your communities you know, I'm doing Facebook. Joyce has been doing this program for 18 years. Get involved in local media. Get involved in social media. More and more disabled people are. Great stories to tell. Your stories are important. And Joyce's story is really important. And looking at her history um, as being an activist in the movement and then beginning to do this program 18 years ago, she's interviewed hundreds of people. All of them have great stories to tell. So and all thank are you, archived. Joyce. They're all archived on my website. So feel free at BenderConsult.com. Well, before we go, we always end with a quote. And today that quote is, when it comes to independent living, it means bringing support to one another to create our own dreams of how we, we want to live our own lives, said Judy Human. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Talk to you next week. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Internet Leader and Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com.